All right, if you have a, a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one like this in the chairs in front of you. And if you're using that, it's on page 2. We're still right at the beginning of this big story. We've been in Genesis now for a few weeks, and we've seen how Adam and Eve uh, brought sin into the world through rebelling against their creator. And we pick up that story now right into chapter 4 and looking at Adam and Eve's children. So I'm going to quickly read this and pray and then get into it. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen?' If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, which is true and good for us. We ask now in your spirit, would you convict us and draw us near to yourself in your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes when we read stories Especially at the beginning of Genesis, we come asking questions of the text, and this is uh, just like the others. We ask questions like, where did all the other people come from? Uh, we will read next week that Cain took his wife and knew her and had a son. Where did Cain's wife come from? You know, Cain's scared that other people are going to kill him. Where are those other cities that he refers to? Those are perfectly good 
questions, but we need to keep in mind that when we go to a text like this, that the author, Moses in this instance, is incredibly selective with the information that he tells us. And that's not because he doesn't think the other information is less important. It's because he's choosing to tell us things that he wants us to know. And so rather than coming to this text asking those questions, although those are good questions to ask, let us ask, what does Moses want to tell us in this passage? And so as we look at this passage, we're going to focus on the, the sort of the essential principles that we find here. And we're going to focus our attention on the principles of these three things, acceptable worship, true faithfulness, and the weight of God's mercy. We're going to focus on acceptable worship, true faithfulness, and the weight of God's mercy. First, Let's see what it means to offer acceptable worship. Adam and Eve have children. First, they have Cain, and then they have Abel. Cain, like his father Adam, becomes a worker of the ground, a gardener. Abel goes out into the fields, and he keeps over the beasts of the field. This is exactly what God created mankind to do in Genesis 1, to have domain over the earth, to keep the beasts of the field. These are wonderful occupations for Cain and Abel. And we see in this text that over the course of time, these two brothers brought an offering to the Lord. Presumably, they still live outside of Eden, and the guards protecting them, uh, prohibiting them from coming into the garden is there, but they know that in the garden is the Lord. And so they bring an offering to the Lord, to the gate of the garden. And we need to keep in mind that as Moses is writing this story about bringing offerings to the Lord, his audience is the redeemed people out of Egypt who are being taught in the wilderness what does it mean to be the people of God. Not only are they getting this story and the rest of Genesis, they are also receiving the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that teach them about what does it mean to bring offerings to the Lord? What does it mean to come and worship God? And they would have known from those other books, those other instructions about worship, that these offerings that Cain and Abel bring are they're, they're a grain offering and an animal offering. It's a kind of consecration offering and peace offering. These aren't sacrifices trying to get rid of their sin. They're coming to have communion and fellowship with God, giving him thanks for everything he has given them already. And so they come with these offerings of fellowship to the Lord. This is their worship. And these primitive ways of worshiping might sound archaic to us. I mean, we don't really bring offerings in this way anymore. But just the, 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 the essence of what they're doing, their desire to experience communion with God, fellowship with God, that is absolutely true today. We don't worship in that same way today, but the desire is still there. We want to come and have fellowship with God. Maybe you've visited a grand basilica, or, uh, or visited uh, one of those ancient Gothic cathedrals like Notre Dame, where you walk in and, and, and your eyes 
are, are drawn upward into the vaulted ceilings, and you see the ornate carvings and paintings, and it's almost like you're swept up into this transcendent experience of God's divinity. Or, or maybe you've had a worshipful experience before where you're together with your brothers and sisters in Christ in, in, a, in a darkly lit room with your hands raised high and heads bowed down with the chords of music echoing around the room. You get swept up into something much larger than yourself. Or, or maybe when you come and receive the elements like this and you're reminded of this ancient tradition of, of coming before the Lord and joining yourself not only with one another in communion, but some in some mystic spiritual way being united to Jesus himself. We bring our worship because we long to connect with and commune with and have fellowship with God. Maybe that is what brings you to Story Church week in and week out, not just fellowship with one another, although I think that our community is wonderful, but fellowship also with God. That is our privilege and pleasure each week to come into the presence of God. We long for communion. We long for fellowship with God. And that's why Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. And yet we read that only Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. What does it mean to have worship accepted? Isn't all genuine worship accepted by God? I'm not convinced I think over and over we see in Scripture, and especially in the book of Leviticus, God prescribes proper worship, and he prohibits improper worship. He sets the standard of what is acceptable worship and what is not. There is worship that works and worship that doesn't work. But what, what do I mean by that? What, what, in what way does worship work? Worship works when, when we worship, we receive the grace of fellowship with God that we're longing for when we worship. That is worship that works. But sometimes worship doesn't work. That's what happens with Cain. He presents his offering and the Lord has no regard for him or his offering. We know that his worship didn't work. He became angry, and his face fell. Have you ever been angry or jealous or bitter towards someone else whose life seemingly looks no different than your own when it comes to worship, and yet their life looks so much better than yours when it comes to other matters of life? They put in as much time as you in church. They serve and give and pray just as much as you, and yet their life seems to be going a whole lot better than yours. Have you ever gotten angry at God or at your brother and sister? Wondering why is God treating my life so unfairly compared to others? 
Why does it seem like other people's acts of obedience and worship seem to work for them, but not for me? Cain's worship wasn't accepted, and he got angry. Why? Why wasn't his worship accepted? Some people say, well, Cain brought a, a grain offering, and Abel brought probably a lamb. And, and the fat portion of the lamb, the firstborn lamb. And, and God has preference for this animal sacrifice over a grain sacrifice. But there's nowhere in the book of Leviticus that says God prefers an animal over grain. Both of these offerings are completely appropriate for their professions. So why? Why? Moses isn't explicit here. He doesn't tell us why. However, later authors of Scripture, looking back on this account, will tell us why Abel's was accepted. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, that it was by faith Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Cain did not have faith, but Abel did. Acceptable worship is worship that is accompanied by faith, by a belief in and trust of the one to whom you bring your worship. Worship only works when there is true faith. It's like screwing in a light bulb into a socket. Just the the mere fact of screwing a light bulb in does not produce light. But you have to connect that socket to electricity. Electricity has to flow through the object for it to work. Our worship must have faith to produce, to receive the grace of fellowship with God that we desire in worship. What does that faith look like? We're going to get to that in a minute when we ask, what is true faithfulness look like? But real quick, I want to make two applications about this. First, there is implied here a word of caution to, to anyone who grew up in a believing household or, or anyone that is raising kids or one day wants to raise kids in a believing household. This is the warning. Both Abel and Cain grew up in a believing household. Their mom and dad trusted in the Lord. They knew the Lord. They believed in his promises. And they certainly desired that both of their children would grow up and be faithful to him. They clearly taught them about the desire for communing with God and the way that we do that through worship. And yet, being raised in a believing household is no guarantee of faith. Abel had faith, but Cain did not. Being baptized or dedicated as a baby, going to church every Sunday, going to Sunday school and catechism classes, doing everything that your family and your community expected of you does not produce faith. 
Yes, the Lord does teach us that it is through the family that discipleship most naturally occurs. Yes, God's covenantal promises are given to households, including children. And yes, the New Testament instructs parents to raise up kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And yet, there is no guarantee of faith. And the warning is this. Do not presume that because of the faith of your parents that you are accepted in your worship. Do not presume that because you are faithful that your children automatically will express faith. It is a warning to us. And then secondly, we see that just as God does not accept us on the basis of our parents' faith, he likewise will not accept our worship apart from faith. What, what I mean is merely doing the acts of worship, the routines of worship, merely doing the behaviors of worship does not automatically mean that our worship is acceptable that our worship works in experiencing the grace of communion with God. Merely singing the songs and praying the prayers and reading the scriptures or taking the elements, by default, these things do not automatically lead us into communion with God. We must have faith accompanying these actions. That's why when I introduce or administer the bread and the cup, I make clear that this is a meal for those who trust in the Lord. Because just drinking the juice and eating the bread does nothing by itself, but when you receive it by faith in Jesus, you commune with your Savior. Apart from faith, our acts of worship are not accepted. They don't work. But when we do come to him in faith, he welcomes us, he accepts us, and he has fellowship with us. So what is that faith? What is true faithfulness? Let's answer that question by looking at the inverse of it. How do we know that Cain did not have faith? By looking at Cain's response to the Lord, we will see what true faithfulness is. He responds to God's caution and God's invitation. First, he responds to God's caution. Look at verse 7. God says to him, when he sees him downcast, says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is warning Cain. He's cautioning Cain that his anger at God and at his brother is like sin crouching at the door. Crouching like a, a predator in the field, hiding in tall grass, ready to pounce on the unsuspecting victim. It's an image of a powerful enemy that is purposefully making itself small and inconspicuous, hiding in the corner, working hard 
not to be seen. And we know that when something is crouching, it means that it's just merely biding time until it can attack, until it can pounce. God is warning Cain that unless he is acknowledging the sin in his life, the anger that's building up, unless he drags his sin out into the light, unless he rules over his sin, this little inconspicuous sin is just hiding in the corner of his heart. Unless he does something about it now, this sin is going to attack. That is God's caution to us. Don't ignore even the little sin in your heart. Even the stuff that you think has no power over you. The stuff that you think that you can just get rid of anytime you want. The sin that's in the corner of your heart that you think no one else knows about. God is saying that sin is like a lion crouching in the grass, ready to attack and dominate you. Cain does not heed the warning. The warning about the true depth of his own sin and brokenness. He does not cry out, oh God, save me from myself. No. He lets that sin go unchecked. In the course of time, the sin attacks, snowballing from merely harboring anger to seizing an opportunity to full-blown murder of his own brother. That is the nature of unchecked sin. It snowballs out of control. I, I think of King David who was on the rooftop in the cool of the evening, and he looked to his side and saw Bathsheba bathing. I'm sure he quickly looked away, but then slowly looked back. That feeling of, what did I just see? Secrecy. That desire for her. That lust. It it took root in his heart, started in the corner, in the grass, and then it pounced. It seized an opportunity. David called for his servants to pull Bathsheba out of her home, to bring her to himself. And he, he laid with her. He took her as his own, but she wasn't. And then it kept on spiraling out of control because he tried to cover it up. He brought Uriah, her husband, back home from the front lines, tried to have him killed, and then did have him killed. You see, this sin left unchecked spirals out of control. It is inconspicuous. It begins small, but it's laying in the field ready to attack. Look, no one wakes up one day suddenly choosing to engage in an affair. Over time, unchecked sin finds an opportunity with a new coworker or a trusted friend. And one conversation turns into another, and more and more, and then the thrill of secrecy comes, and you begin to nurse this little sin into something much larger. Sooner or later, what might have begun as just a friendly hello has snowballed into something uncontrollable and utterly destructive. 
Faithlessness looks like not heeding God's warning about the power of unchecked sin in your heart. Do not be like Cain. Have faith in God. Ask him to help you with your sin. Ask him to save you from yourselves before it is too late. That's what happened with Cain. Left unchecked, his sin spiraled out of control, and he ended up murdering his brother. But we also see Cain's unfaithfulness in the way he responds to God's invitation. Because after the murder, in verse 9, the Lord comes to him with an invitation, an invitation to repent. He says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? We've seen this question before. When Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate it, the Lord came to them and said, where are you? God knew where they were. And so the question wasn't for Adam and Eve. The question isn't for Cain. Or sorry, the question isn't for the Lord. It's for Adam and Eve. It's for Cain. Cain, what have you done? Where is your brother? It's an invitation for Cain to bring his actions into the light, to repent, to confess his sin. What does Cain say? He lies. He refuses to act in faith. He says, I don't know. By contrast, we see here what true faithfulness is. Being faithful is is not demonstrated by whether you sin or not. We can't get rid of our sin. True faithfulness is is not in whether you sin or not. It's how you respond to your sin. Let me say that again. True faithfulness is not shown in avoiding sin, but in how you respond to your sin. Do you respond with confession and repentance? Or, like Cain, do you respond with ignorance and deception? No, no, there's no way I could ever do that. No, I didn't do that, no. No one is perfect. That's not the question here. Abel wouldn't claim to be perfect The question about faithfulness is not, do you sin or not? The question is, how are you going to respond when you are confronted with your sin? Cain's response was to belittle his sin, to ignore it away, to say that he wasn't really as bad as God thought he was. Then he walked in darkness and deception, lying and covering up his sin when he found out. That is faithlessness. But true faithfulness is acknowledging your sin, walking in the light of repentance, bringing your sin, even your little pet sins, into the light. We know that light does two things. It exposes and reveals, and it guides us. To bring your sin into the light is to allow the Lord to expose what is really going on in our hearts. To believe that what he says about us is true. But it's also to walk in the paths of repentance and righteousness. Bring your sin to the light. Let him expose it. Follow him. Walk toward him. 
That's true faithfulness. That's the kind of faith that enables our worship to work. That's the kind of faith that enables our worship to be acceptable. Finally, we have to ask then, how do we muster up the courage then to repent? How, how do we build the confidence to actually confess our sin and repent, to have that kind of faith? We need to feel the weight of God's mercy. That's how we're going to do it. We need to feel the weight of his mercy and be wooed by him into repentance. Look, I know that confessing sin and repenting of sin is difficult. It's, it's hard work. It's messy. It can be hurtful. It's a dreadful thing to acknowledge the ways that we have hurt other people, especially those that we love. We're afraid to be honest about what we've done because we fear hurting. We fear the consequences of revealing what's wrong with us. We are afraid of the eternal consequences even with God. We know that our sin displeases God. We know that it grieves the Holy Spirit. We know that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We know that our sin deserves a punishment. It deserves death, retribution. So we lie about it. We don't walk in the light because we don't want to receive what's coming for us. But despite Cain's lie, despite Cain's unfaithfulness and attempts at covering it up, We see what the Lord does. Sorry, before that. We see the fear of Cain worried about what God would do, especially in verse 10, when God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The, bro- the blood of his brother, still warm upon the ground, cries out for justice. It is crying out against Cain. It is crying out for vengeance against the one who murdered an innocent man. This is why Cain is fearful to confess. He knows that the Lord is just. Maybe that's why you're fearful to confess You know that the Lord is a God of justice, that he defends those who are oppressed and hurt and marginalized. You know that God defends the causes of the poor, the widow, and the foreigner, and the innocent. We know that the Lord is a God of justice, and so we hide our sin from God and one another because we're terrified of what might happen if we bring it to the light. Strikingly, however, when we see how God responds to Cain, what do we see? Does God respond to Cain with justice? Does God say, I will avenge your death, Abel, and I will kill your brother? No. God does not respond with justice. He responds with mercy. Yes, he punishes Cain for his behavior, but he does not kill him. He does not give to Cain what Cain deserves. 
rather than ending his life right then, right there, which would have been just of the Lord, the Lord preserves his life. And when Cain complains that this punishment is too much for him to bear, how he's going to be banished from outside of Eden, that he would be left unprotected, that other people would come and kill him, what does the Lord do then? Again, he acts in mercy towards Cain, giving him a mark, a seal of protection that would prevent anyone from taking his life. What we are seeing here is that again and again and again, given the choice between acting in justice or mercy towards his people, God delights in showing mercy. God is merciful. It is who he is. He is rich in mercy and is able to lavish it upon us again and again. Throughout the story of the Bible, we see God lavishing mercy on his people, even when they act without faith. This story is paralleled in the life of Israel, who were called to be faithful, and yet when they acted faithlessly. God banished them from the land. Sound familiar? And yet he mercifully promises that if they return to him in repentance, he would gather them back to their glory. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, where the son goes off out of the land, squandering everything he has, bringing shame upon the name of his family. But the father like our merciful God himself, stands at the road waiting and ready to receive his son back again, welcoming him into the family. Friends, God is a God of mercy, always ready to receive us back to himself when we confess our sin and repent and come to him. This is who he is. We must not call people to repentance out of the threat of the fear of judgment, but rather woo people to God under the weight of his mercy. His mercy is more than our sin. It is greater than our sin. How do we know that his mercy is greater? In this story, we have the blood of an innocent man crying out for justice against the one who killed him. And yet the author of the book of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus Christ, who has accomplished for us a new covenant, a new relationship with God, it cries out with a better voice than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus cries out a better word than justice. What does the blood of Jesus cry out to you and me? Mercy, forgiveness. On the cross, as his blood was shed, what did he say? Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God's mercy is more than the threat of judgment. His mercy invites us to himself. When we feel the weight of mercy, 
when we feel the weight of God's mercy on us, that he welcomes us like a son, when we feel that we can respond to him in faith, knowing that he won't turn us away, that we can be real about our sin, we can be real about the things that we've done in the dark, when we come to him with that kind of faith, trusting in his mercy, then we do have fellowship with him. He does accept us in our worship. He does come to us and invite us to experience his joy. That is what we learn from this passage. When we come to him in faith, he promises to welcome us. Let's pray.